0: Hello and welcome to Fishing Friday. <laughs> the 8 track. I used to hate Herb Alpert. Yeah. And um, because of my dad playing it incessantly on a Volvo estate car on a holiday, just Herb Alpert and James Last, and it was like sit in the back. They was slain.
1: Always craving me to
0: might play a bit more of that later. But uh yeah, 8-tracks. Um as I said, my dad used to have the garage Dick Brothers and um he used to be able to get deals in 8-tracks. because uh, we, we sold them in the garage and there used to be these little carousels when as soon as you came in the door. And uh he used to <laughs> he let me pick the music to he let me pick the 8-track cartridges to sell in the store. So I used to go into the, the, the dealership, it was basically, it was a car dealership. We weren't buying a record companies or anything. We bought them off a car dealership and they could order some bits and pieces from the catalog from us, obviously from the record companies. And uh, so he let me choose um, music to put on. And uh, I used to pick the eight tracks for Sailing <laughs> the Garage. And it was like Brain Salad Surgery by Emerson, Lake and Palmer and uh, all this kind of stuff. And then um, what other ones I had? Um, the Yes Albums, Close to the Edge. But I used to buy, I used to get them myself, because I used to get them at kind of reduced price, because my dad had let me buy them at kind of his dealer price. So I had quite a, a good collection of 8-tracks in, 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 the, in my, my room back in uh, Glebe Street in Dalkeith. But it was, yeah, my dad used to complain, he used to go, these are no selling, son, they're no selling. They're just, there's, there's no demand for them. I used to put James' last stuff up and it used to just fly out the door. I would have been rubbish at a record, record shop. A record shop owner, terrible. But the A-tracks, and it was like... So I had a lot of stereo, stereo A-tracks. I had stereo A-tracks and I had cassettes when I was a kid and then vinyl. My first ever uh, record deck I ever bought for, for playing records, vinyls, was it was an ITT thing and it was brilliant. And I'll come on to that again in a wee bit because there's another question that kind of relates to that. But yeah, but the eight track was kind of the the thing, and I used to like rattle it on. And uh, I was winded off. I was winded off eight tracks. Really, when vinyl came in, I just stopped buying eight tracks, and it was they got left. But my dad kept on them, and he, he used to have a Hitachi set, and he got a Hitachi recording eight at track right. And there was only the one. We only had one eight track cassette tape. Right, or one eight-track tape for recording on and, and i used to record um alan freeman on a saturday because it was a stereo attache and it had a receiver on it so i used to go into the front room on a saturday afternoon and listen to alan freeman and i used to record a lot of stuff on this eight track so that I could, I could play it back later on and i thought that was marvelous right but uh but the eight tracks when, when my dad died he beat been on about me to to basically repair his eight track and I'd, it was a waste of time because so they were used in America. They were, they were used a lot by truckers. That was kind of where the eight track kind of really originated from. And it was truckers and long drives. They could put. A, they didn't have to change cassettes. They just put it on, and it's just one big, big loop that goes round and round and round. Basically, eight tracks, four stereo tracks that, that go across a head. So it went round and round. So the truckers traveling, you know, huge distances loved it. And it kind of came across here, and it followed on. I had I used to have Elton John and the Who. Uh, Beaty Beaty, Big and Bouncy, I had that on 8-track. Elton John's Greatest Hits and I think Caribou or something. And uh, But my dad carried on with 8-tracks and then it was like when the Hitachi broke, I tried to repair it, I couldn't find anybody to repair it anywhere in the UK. And then when my dad died, there was a great big box of 8-tracks and I just couldn't bring myself to throw them out, you know, because it was like, even though a lot of it was bish, it was like, There was a lot of stuff that kind of brought back memories and there was a couple albums that I used to really, really like. And and I got them back and it was, I had no 8-track player and I I tried to find one on eBay, which was really difficult. And it was a fan and I can't remember his name and he was out in America and he was in, uh, I think he was in uh, Chicago. If you're listening, thank you very much. I still remember your gift. It was, it's been great. And every now and again, you know those eight tracks do go on, and we go into kind of stupid party mode every now and again, but not for the last three, four months or so. <laughs> the eight track. Ending okay. up. I was disturbed before it came on. Uh, I wasn't very sure what exactly what my mood was going to be like because I was watching CNN and I had uh, uh, President Donald Trump wobbling on. And it was for about 20 minutes and I was, I thought maybe I should just do an entire kind of Fish on Friday and and kind of Trumpisms. And I thought, nah, I can't, every time I I kind of watch CNN and you see the broadcast, you get out of my head, get out of my head. Let's not go down that route, reserved for like personal nights. New shirt this week. Sorry about this for anybody that's so disturbed by it, it's a Bernian it shop. Uh, I decided to buy a couple of bits out the the merch store to support the club. Still waiting to find out. And I keep on thinking about that that um, Robert Plant line on the Zeppelin song. I said, like, you know, was it, does anyone remember laughter? I said, does anybody remember football? I'm missing it bad. And I bought my season tickets for Easter. the Road. Simone and I have got season tickets for this year. We've got them, they're done and dusted. Like I said, I just thought I'd support the club and buy a couple of shirts just to kind of throw something because it's it's kind of pretty weird times at the moment, as we all know. And, uh, you know, people, I just came, I was on the phone to my agent today, which didn't put me in a great mood either. And uh, the October-November tour, there's still massive question marks on it, but... Just getting the news in from Germany and stuff, saying that there's been kind of resurgence and spikes and bits and pieces, and you know, the general news vibe is just like it's just throwing a, a big wet blanket over the idea of this October November touring at this moment. I want to go out, I'm, I'm, I'm desperate to go out in the road, and I'm desperate to take the Velschmerz album out in the road. And uh, but at the moment, I don't know, but I mean, the, the conversation today was basically on the lines of we better. Uh, put some dates in place just to cover for next year, just in case, just in case. So we just have to see how it goes. But um, I'm I'm quite okay here. Like I said, I had a kind of weird week. I mean, I've, I've, three four days. I think it was to do with the weather, and it was just it was a bit cloudy and a bit cold, and I had to get the fleeces out and put. I threw all the, the squashes and courgettes and all that these kind of tender greens. They're waiting on the summer. I put them out in the cold frame to get them toughened up, which was called hard enough. And then the very first thing I put all these plants into the cold frame was, I came back in here and got the the Met report, which said zero degrees. And I was like, I was like, oh no. So I had to run out, I had to wrap the whole cold frame in fleece to try and keep it relatively warm, but they're doing okay. But I think that kind of got my mood. It was just, you know, between that and, um, I'd really hoped that the, the, the merchandise system would be back up in line you know, for this weekend, but it's not gonna be. A couple of, couple of things, we had some issues were calculations and just putting software together, which was just took longer than, than a lot of the, the guys that refuse metrics thought. And then I had, um, uh, we had an internet failure here. Yes, yes, we had an internet failure. I had no Netflix. For two days, it was a disaster, and um, yeah, for something happened to the, the the whole Wi-Fi in the house, and I was getting really worried because um, Nick Cook, hello Nick, thank you. Nick came in today and basically uh, righted it because I get my service comes from Lothian Broadband, which is a great wee local provider, and they do a grand job of uh, looking after us, and. Uh, it was something to do with the internals of the house, decided to just throw a glitch. It's me, tech, you know? Um, yeah, and I, I just, I, I don't like it. It's just, you know, when things go wrong and I was pulling wires out and putting wires back in and, you know, you're never really sure what you're doing. So at the moment I've got Wi-Fi back in the house because, like I said, I was dreading the fact that I was going to have to maybe knock on somebody's door. and Can I borrow your Wi-Fi? Do fish and Friday, please? Because it's very important. Anyway, I'm here. Fraser Henderson, I love Latvia too. What? Oliver Dann Bundesliga starts again. I, I know. this is weird. We' seen all these, these different kind of you know like let's play football where there was something was seen today that they were, they were making rules for if we, they came back to play football that you have, you have, you, if you tackled, you weren't allowed to tackle with your eyes open. And tackling with your eyes closed is just, you know, a trainer's nightmare. It'd just be broken legs for days. I always had my eyes closed when I went in. Sorry about that. But yeah, so the Bundesliga, so let's see how it goes. I mean, I, with Scottish football, I am i don't think it's going to be on for months. And games behind closed doors, I mean, it's, it's going to be weird for the players. And I think weird for us, you know, watching TV and just watching something... Window will roar coming through. Maybe we'll get like canned roaring, you know, like they do instead of canned laughter for comedy sports. Uh, Robert P. and Bianchi in Italy, hello. Jürgen Hartmann in Germany, hello. Alvaro Teresa, hello. Yandy Lyman, yeah, all of these big flat. Yeah, they just come at you. It's just like, and I just kind of wallowed a little bit and uh i found it difficult to go out in the garden again because of the weather i mean there's there's been loads of stuff to be done and uh this weekend is is definitely predetermined as being solid garden week but um but yeah i I think it was just that it was a, a general malaise kind of set about me but i was i'm okay now fine it's um like i said i forced myself to go out and do a bit of digging the other day and i felt like i'd been hit by a bus at night, I was like aching. Anyway, let's get into this shit. Uh, Oh, here we go. I'll take one for here, it's easier. Uh, Okay, I told you about the ITT record deck, right? Simon French, you said The Who are one of your favourite bands. Can you tell me which Who album is your favourite? Also, do you listen to Roger Daltrey's solo work? Um, My favourite Who album without a shadow, without is quadrophenia. And I didn't get into it for ages. I was... When I first listened to The Who, it was was the singles. It was the singles that were on the radio, and that was how I was introduced to The Who. And then... uh, an old friend of mine, Keith Blenderleith, who lives in Queensland in Australia, who's a guitarist, who from he was from Dalkeith. And I remember him playing me Tommy, which I didn't quite like. I think he was Big Brother, was was not in really into Tommy. And I was kinda into it. I love Pinball Wizard that I knew and stuff. But I mean the album that I really liked at the time was Meaty Beaty Big and Bouncy, which was basically a, a, a greatest hit to a lot of the early singles. And then there was the the Who's Next album? But the Quadrophini album I kind of avoided. I, I don't know. I, again, it was, it was funny. I, I saw it on, a, it was for sale on an 8-track, believe it or not, in Creef. We used to go up to Creef Hydro uh, with a family. And it was like every October, we went up to to Creef Hydro. And occasionally, we'd have a summer holiday there, whatever. And it was a great big hotel. And, you know, you, there were swimming pools. And it was... It was a kind of religious place, there was no alcohol there at the time. There was no bar in, in the hotel or anything. And there was tennis courts and badminton courts and, and things like that. And when I was a teenager, I, I, I really objected to be taken out of my space in the house at home and away from my hi-fi and things. And, and like I said, I, I was in the 8-tracks in my early teens. And I remember going into the little record store in Kreef, down in, in the in the, the, in the, the town and they used to have the Quadrophenia eight-track there, and when I came back there six months later, the Quadrophenia eight-track was still there, and it was reduced. And I'm going like, there's, there's something wrong with that. And it was, it must be a NAF album. I, I didn't like the cover at the time, and uh, I because I was into Roger Dean or whatever. But I mean, um, it didn't attract me, and I didn't know any of the songs on it, and um, and it was vinyl. I got I got Quadrophenia on vinyl, and it was. Uh, and I must have been about maybe 17, 18 by then at that point and I fell in love with it. I mean, fell in love with it. I just loved all the emotions that were just crammed into the performances and the energy that was in, that is in the album. And I remember taking my ITT stereo that I told you about earlier on that I bought from the mall in Dalkeith, the show called The Mall. And I used to walk past it all the time, coming back from school, looking at this ITT stereo. I think it was about, I think it was about 80 quid or something at the time. And, um, and um, when I got it back, it had, it used to have two stereo ports. You could put two loads of speakers in. And I took the speakers from my e stereo and plugged them into the back next to things. I took the whole lot out to the garden and I put the speakers out to the garden. So it was like kind of kid on quadraphonic. And I just, laptop and I just danced like a mad jack all about the garden listening to Quadrophonia. and uh I used to love doing that in the, in the summer but it was it was like kid on it was kid on quadriphonic kid on quadrophonic listening to Quadrophonia. um yeah it was it was fun but I mean it's an album I've always loved and uh it's one you know when I was when I was uh when I was drinking, it was a kind of so case at two o'clock in the morning. You know, with the wine out, it's with the big kefs behind me, and they blast, they 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 kick, right? And two o'clock in the morning, throwing them up, and then feeling very guilty and feeling I should be writing letters to the neighbours the next day. Very sorry about that I was very very drunk, very drunk. But it was um, but yeah, I said I love the album, and I think it's the way he uses the horns. I mean, but I love Townsend's writing. I love his lyrics. I mean, um. All the Best Cowboys of Chinese Eyes uh, is, is a fantastic album. There's some great songs in it, but I think he's like me. He was like, you know, within the band, he was seen as being, you know, it was The Who. And when Townsend kind of moved out of it, it, it was even though he was doing most of the stuff for The Who, when he moved out, his solo career never really got the same accolades. On, they never had the same spotlight. I got some great tapes. Uh, Mark Brzezinski, who was my drummer, the drummer of things we talked about last week, but um, when Mark Bajetsky was with me, he, he gave me a, a tape from the sound desk, uh, the the big band, the, the Pete Townsend big band, and it was the the, the, um, the White City album, and that was astounding. And he had great horns, and it was one of the reasons why, when I did the Vigil album, the, the guys that played uh, all the horns on the Vigil album. On big wedge and things like that, they were all guys that worked with Pete Townsend and the Who lineup, which was the reason they were called the Kickhorns. They were a brilliant uh, lineup. Roddy Lorimer was one of the guys, and uh, they were a, a brilliant horn section. And that's why we picked them for the, the Vigil album, was because of that Pete Townsend White City stroke. Mark Brzezicki, because Mark played drums on the, the Vigil album when we recorded it at the Townhouse Studios. So, uh, so yeah. But I mean, I've always, I mean, I've always loved the, the Who stuff. I've not heard the the, the new album. I've kind of, I've, I've a lot of people say it's great. I've just not managed to get round to hearing it. I, like I have said before, I don't listen to that much stuff. But I mean, um, um, I clicked back and and found a couple of the album, Who albums that I missed, and it was I can't even remember the names, but they were like. My thing was after Quadrophenia and the, the Who's next album, it was kind of that. I, the, I saw them, I saw them at Hyde Park, and I really didn't like it. It was like too quiet. <laughs> I was standing about fifty yards away from the right-hand PA stack in Hyde Park, and I could still talk talk to the person next to me. And I kind of went, this is new. Because I loved it loud. And I saw the Who at Parkhead Football Stadium, as I said before, the Sensational Alex Harvey Band. Stunning out of this world. When the lasers fired out over over Parkhead, I'd never seen lasers before. And I just thought I was seeing God. It was just beautiful. Right? So, let's go back in. David Zag... Sagasetta, Jersey. I like all your music, but I don't like your lyrics. That's fair enough. Glen Weldy, Buffalo, New York. Will there ever be a reissue of the early stages box set? Uh, I don't know. If it's running through. No, there won't be. I've, I've, I don't see any. That will not be happening. Is there any... Is Marino, Marina Buru, is there any song from Cordoffinia you particularly like to sing? Uh, 515's a good one. And then Incommunicado was very much influenced Wink by the Cordofini album, which I think was Sea and Sand. Um, Dr Jimmy I love. I love the Dr Jimmy lyric. Uh, uh, Don Onions, DuPont, South Wales, I donned Keith Coles, Uncle Albert David Sagasetta, Jersey, and I love Vigil. Saving yourself. Marielle Miller, Valander, hi from Sweden. That was another thing. When I was talking to Majent today, they were talking about the October-November two days. And um, one of the things they were talking about, that's under discussion, is opening venues with reduced capacities. So like doing, you know, if you play an 800 capacity venue, they only allow 400 in, you know. And it's like, I ain't gonna work. It's like, I can't imagine, I don't know about you, but I can't imagine going to a rock gig and standing two meters away for everybody. That's what I used to do at the old, you know, St Nicholas Church badminton disco record hops, you know, standing away from people just dancing, you know, don't come near me. But um, I, I can't imagine that. And uh, on top of that, I mean, the economics, it's like, you know, when you're going out on a tour, you're aiming at doing venues where you know, you, you're trying to to, to get the yeah the venues you pick are the number of people to towards the number of people you think are going to turn up and see you, right so like you know when you're picking a 400 venue or an 800 capacity or a thousand capacity venue you're looking at try and put a thousand people in there not 400 you know and uh so unless you book like arenas and then half fill them right so like that's the only way you can get away with it but i don't <laughs> economically that ain't gonna work either but it's yeah i mean i, I don't know i mean. I, they were saying that Sweden, which was the, the tag for this, it was like, and, and the Swedish promoter said that he doesn't see any problem, but some of the German states or regions are, are adopting different ideas. So this could be impossible to make a, a tour work, you know, if, if that is what happens in October, November. So again, you know, I've just got to wait and see what happens. Uh, Christina Sadre, in Germany, hello. David, tell high Fish, do you have to retire? At some point, I've got to go home properly. Uh, I, I don't know what's going to happen now. It's, uh, you know, if the October, if, 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 the October, October, November tour doesn't happen, and that moves till, like, next year, then I'm going to be doing the Welchmers tour next year. And then I can't tour immediately after that. I can't just go out and do another kind of tour so that's going to mean another year off the road or whatever or nine months before i, I start a farewell tour so i mean blah, 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 blah. Well, it's a major rethink I, I i don't know what's going to happen but all i can say is that my retirement plans as far as touring will be changing as far as the album they're not changing velchmerz will be out at the end of september and there are no plans to 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 do anything else so Maybe after that that's when, you know, I write the book in the close year before the last tour, which may be an idea. I don't know. I don't want to think about that just now. Erdinger time again. Um, Andrew Harrison KB Cheer up I'm alright, I'm alright. I'm do you like to cheer up. Uh, Dave Hardy, iFish, what was the TV programme you appeared in singing a deep purple song? I think it was black night it was back in the 90s yes it was it was black Knight and it was a young person's guide to becoming a rock star and there's an interesting story about that back in about 1990 i think it was 1990 um i was approached by somebody uh and his name was Brian Elsley, and Brian and I knew from Dalkey's High School. He was a really nice guy, really clever wee guy, and he was a big friend of my, my, my sister's. In fact, I think they were actually romantically entwined at one t- point in time, but or they had eyes for each other. Anyway, Brian Elsley, I remembered from Dalkey's. And he got in contact with me and he said that he was wanting to get some background do some research on writing a, a series or writing a movie about the music the business and i went okay and it was brian so he came along with the house and we sat next door and we talked for about an hour and a half and just waxing lyrical about bits and pieces just giving them background and then lo and behold years later my theatrical agent i had one once my theatrical agent um got in contact with me and said there's a script coming for a channel 4 series and it's really funny and would you would you go ahead would you go in addition for it and i went yeah and they sent me up the script and i read it right and then I read it again and i was i had a wry smile upon my face and um, I went through to the audition in Glasgow and I did the, the, the read-through for a character called Derek Trout, say no more, right, and I realised that the writer was Brian Elsley and I basically said to the director, it's, uh, in a laughing joking manner after the audition, it says if I actually don't get this role I'm going to sue you, right, and she's going what do you mean I said, well, blah, 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 did it. And I read it, and it was like, favorite meal, mincing tatties, blah, 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 et cetera, et cetera, married to the German wife, etc. etc. right. And it, and it was, and Brian admitted that he kind of based it on me. So it was, I had to play it. And I had such a lot of fun making that. It was, it was really, really good fun. And um, it's, if, you, if you can catch it on, I think you can find episodes on YouTube, but my character my character was called Derek Trout and I had to do this thing where I was growing marijuana plants on the roof of my kind of pseudo castle vibe thing which was actually a house out near like obviously not mine and uh and I was firing a shotgun and I was skeet shooting from the top of the, the the building but it was the whole thing was just it was just so tongue-in-cheek it was wonderful and it was it was really funny to do and I was in a, quite a couple of episodes and uh, and I've got great memories, really fond memories, some some real dastardly ones as well, of actually shooting that, because that was like, they got other people, they were all kind of actors, and they never really kind of been around anybody like me before. So at night, we'd be sitting in my hotel room, right? I remember being across the Largs, and sitting in the hotel room and, and drinking till like all hours of the morning, to get up to go and set at like, you know, eight in the morning, to get picked up by the car to go down to the set. And everybody's looking really rock and roll, right? <laughs> and you guys, is this what you do all the time? I go, ah, so we do this all the time, every night, we're like, every night, like this. <laughs> I didn't have to sing, all I had to do was remember my lines. It's a difference when you're going to have to sing and staying up till four or five in the morning, go... like, <laughs> ah. Uh, Rejudge it, we do the, reboot the page. Gary I think I was Gary Crowley, I just saw one there. I'm just recharging it there. Come on, come on, come on. Just recharging the page. Have I decided on the pre-orders for Velschmerz that was... Oh, God. The pre-orders for Velschmerz will be in July sometime. I don't know when. I wanna make sure that everything is absolutely in line. I've got no problems in manufacturing and I know when it's gonna be here with me and it won't go out until... I've got every one of those in, in, in place because we had a nightmare on the Feast of Consequences on the, the deluxe version because we were promised a delivery date that went back and went back and went back and I was flaming and we actually didn't get the deluxe Feast album until I was in Denmark on the tour and I never actually saw the finished product until I was, I was actually at the gig in Copenhagen and I remember my daughter Tara opening up the boxes and we go, oh, it's here." That was a nightmare, and I really want to avoid that this time because it was. There was a lot of people got rightfully quite angry about the delay because it had been so. This the pre-order for Welchmerz will occur in September. Uh, sorry, will occur in July, sometime for the release at the end of September. So uh, yeah, it's. I just want to make sure everything's sorted and. We know, it's, uh, there's, there's so many questions about at the moment. I don't want to add more questions, you know. Gary Van Dean-Smith, will we see you in a pub again now that you're Tito? Yeah, it's, I've, I've been going down the, the Townside Tavern in Harrington. You know, I was going down there and I was drinking this thing called wish. And I was there with Steve Vances and uh, Steve had also stopped drinking. It was quite strange. I mean, actually at the Aberdeen Lemon Tree gig, there was nobody in the band that was drinking at all, right? The only person that was drinking was Dominic, the the, the tour manager. Hi, Dominic. And um, yeah, he was the only one that was drinking. There was nobody else in the band drinking, so it was a, it was strange, but you know. But yeah, I've, I've got no hassle, I've got no problems going into pubs and going out. It, it, it's a really weird thing. It's like, you know, we're now, like I said, my wife and I are now coming up to five, five months. Yeah, it's nearly five months. And no hankering, hankering, nothing, you know? And I think, uh, yeah, it's really strange. But yeah, I've got no problems with going in a pub, but just, like I said, I'm on this and this alcohol fry. And also, thanks very much. I've seen actually some, some messages from people, some photographs. Notice that it's been taken up a few people. I'm not sponsored by them. I've got nothing to do with them at all. I just happen to quite like this. Marcel Graf from Switzerland. Hello, Ross William McDonald. Hi, Fish. Where are you hand doing his on the Scotch Cup? My dad saw them lift the lofty cup, then passed away. Wow, where did where did this go? Yeah, um, I've lost that message. Ah, where's this going? Sorry. Yeah, so... it's hard, I'm just trying to catch this. It's spinning so fast. There's so many of you guys out there, it's crazy, crazy. Yeah, I didn't see the question. I don't know who it was from, so i sorry, I apologise. I missed it, but I got the gist of the message. It was, um, yeah, when Hibs won the the Scottish Cup, it was the first time in, about 114 years. And it was the, it was, it was it was tough to live with when you were a Hibs supporter, not having won it for 114 years. And our our fellows across the other side of the city, Heart of Midlothian, love to remind us, right? And of course, we had a, a horrible defeat at their hands. And uh, we got beat 5-1, and I remember my dad came up to watch the Scottish Cup final. The first Scottish Cup final I went to with my dad was way back in, I think it was 73. And we got beat 6-1 by Celtic. Drove all the way to Hampden on the old roads, right? Like, hours, right? And we got B six one, and I was absolutely gutted. I mean, I remember being in tears, like in the car. I just couldn't believe it. It was like it was our right, our destiny was to win that cup, and we never won it. And I went back there so many times. I've sat, I've been in Switzerland, at the, the a festival in Geneva, sitting there with um, yeah, Jimmy and Neil for the silencers, watching Celtic hibs, and watching hibs getting beat by by Celtic. But forty five minutes before I went on stage and doing what I always do with football, or what I used to do really badly with football, right? It's like, on a Sunday, if I'm watching like, there's a Hibs game, especially a Hibs-Harts game, right? You just sit there, and you, I was just drinking wine, and drinking wine, and drinking wine, and just watching it, and it's like, there's that little surge of adrenaline going on all the time. Drinking wine, and it's half time, you go, you go, what go, I do, right? Sitting half, wow, wow, drinking wine, and you're just opening, pop, 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 pop. 90 minutes, whistle blows, pished, right? Didn't even realise, right? And, and you're just suddenly going, and you turn into the wobbly man, right? And uh, the number of times that I, d- I did that, and, uh, and I remember down in Geneva at that time, watching with Jimmy Neil, I was on stage for a minutes and it was there was free wine all day at this festival because it was in Switzerland, Geneva, and part of the going down there was you had free food and wine. And I'm paneling this wine back and I had to go on stage, and it was like it was definitely, like, right? I will say. In my entire life, there are, you could count on two hands, in the 62 years I've been on this planet, like less than two hands, how many times I've actually been unable to walk or talk. Right? In fact, probably one hand, right? It was, uh, I've got, a, there's a fuse goes off of me. It's a kind of fuse goes off and it goes, it goes, time to go home, time to go home. But, um, but that Heb Celtic match at Geneva, the, the fuse went off very late and, uh. But anyway, Hibbs Cup Finals. I digress. Seen them lose so many times. In that particular final in uh, 2016, the game was on the Saturday, and I was doing an SES gig. I had, I had a couple of SES gigs to do. And I was way down to the south of England, and I couldn't get back. And at that time, my dad had gone into hospital. He was really ill. And uh, he was. it was getting pretty bad. I not go down that route, but it was like... And I remember I had to go and see, I had to see the game. I th- was it in Crowborough or somewhere? And um, anyway, so I found this pub, it was called The Dolphin. And I went, it's an Omen, right? And I walked in and the guy, the barman, was basically a hip supporter. And the only other guy was in the bar, was a ranger supporter and his wife, right? And it was like, and I go, we're going to watch the game, yeah. And it was before the game, I said, it was like, just do it for my dad. He's in a bed in the... In, in the Eastern, in Edinburgh, right? Just yeah, make it happen, right? And the Western General. And it was, a. Uh, and long story short, we won the game. It was like kind of last minute kind of scoring. Da-da-da. I remember crying. I remember like, da-da-da. and I couldn't phone my dad because he didn't have a mobile and I didn't have his ward number because he'd only gone in on the Thursday. He'd been rushed into Western on the Thursday. So basically the next day, I flew back from Southampton, into Edinburgh Airport, got in the car, drove straight to the Western General, went up and saw him, and it was brilliant. And we talked for about an hour, and we had the Sunday Post and the Cuttings, and we were talking about this, and we had a really brilliant time together. The next morning, he died. 10 o'clock in the morning, like that. And, uh, and, it was, um, and I was just so glad. That, I was so glad that, you know, he, he, he saw the match, because my daughter Tara actually brought in the iPad, I think it was, on her ipad and she'd recorded the highlights so he saw he saw the highlights of the game and then and then it was like you know like i said i said goodbye at my night and then the next next morning that was it and it was uh and the thing was that i always got my dad's birthday wrong this is a true story right and it's been said a couple of times right the true story i even got this wrong at a fan club convention and some of you already know this right and i was like what's your dad's birthday and i was like i couldn't remember i go blank and it was like, and I always go, is it May the 4th, is it May the 7th, right? I could never remember, right? And even then, I'm having a blank again, right? So, my dad died two days after the match. And my mum didn't want a stone, he was cremated and stuff. And I wanted something, just, you know, I wanted something for him. And at Easter Road, they've got these green granite stones, and they're in the West Stand at Easter Road, and there's a whole wall of them, and they're all kind of in memory and stuff like that. And you can buy one. I thought this is what we'll do. So my mum came in with me and, and all the rest of it, and we bought a, a, a stone, and it, you know, and it had you know, Robert Dick, and it was uh, he left us a final smile, right? And that was the inscription, and then there was the dates, right? And I'm going, I've got to get the date right. I've got to get the date right, right? And um, I, I wanted to put in, you know, died and, and born died, right? And uh, I got the, the I got the date of his birth right and I got the date of his death wrong, right? After all that with the kerfuffle with dates, right? And when I saw it, and every time I go back, I had to, and I had to admit it to my mum that I got it wrong, right? <laughs> and every time I go past the West End, I, I see that stone every time and I know he's laughing his head off right because i got the dates wrong as always right so gary dixon talk about queen i'll talk about queen one day it's like kim mason my dad also used to play james last in the hairball <laughs> still in the background absolutely barry so it is uh cheddie hello anna newman hello edward vinsky hello kelly arnold uh Paul Gaultier, when you finally retire, can you move to Florida, USA? A lot of singers moved to Florida. No. Couldn't handle the heat, nor the crocodiles or the alligators or whatever they are. Sod that. John Wesley, right? When I remember sitting at John Wesley's house and he had this wee hut round the back. So he said, a lot of house the, his heart He's hutting in. The end. There was a depression in the, in the field. And he said, that's where the snakes go. And seemingly he walked, he went into his, his house. There was actually a, a rattler round the, or something around his the handle of his lawnmower and i go i don't want to live in a place like that spiders i can deal with snakes nah i said and australia I freaked me out spiders that can kill you no i don't like it big hairy ones gareth ballen hello greetings Purple, Velvet Records, hello. Oliver Dahan, do you watch Vikings? Yeah, I did. And the historical discrepancies, of course. It's like, oh, it's all these historical movies. So, like Braveheart. You watch Braveheart and you get into the whole thing, but if you actually analyse it, there's a lot of bollocks in there. You know? Simon Farquhar, hello. I've not read your book yet, Simon. My wife's reading it at the moment. I'm still in the Phil Collins book. Simon Farquhar, high question for you in the late 70s, the early 80s. What did you think of... Ah, no. I missed it. This This thing's spinning, man. Mike Tangson, Bear Moves and Jagger. Oh, I really, really, I really. Yeah. A career-spanning box set once the new album was out. Michael Nichols. No, I'm not considering putting... Uh, nah. No. I've, I've, the remasters are all there. They're all done individually remastered, and they've all got their demos and their live stuff, all the remasters. That's the legacy. I don't really feel I have to put the whole thing together in a big box when people could just individually unwrap. Paul Shitigans, Schittig- come Antwerp next year. I would love to come to Belgium. I did, part of the thing with the lockdown is I've done a lot more interviews where kind of people that I haven't, I haven't talked to. I did eight interviews with Belgium and Holland about two weeks ago, and there was about two or three were in Belgium. And I'll say out the exact same thing. I don't come there not through choice. It's because give me geese a gig, geese a gig, and I'll be there. Uh, uh, Michael Simmons. Oh, Michael Simmons. Oh, this is a pain. This is. Oh, I'm trying to get a hold of this, this timeline to get the questions. But I'm going to have to. I'm going to. Have to... Nigel Wiffle-Smith from Liverpool. Axel Speer, I love in Paris. Bonjour, Jean-Luc Jolivet. Oh, Simon Farquhar, question for you. In the late 70s, early 80s, what did you think of other musical genres of the time? Disco, new wave and movement, disco. New Wave, meh. That, New Wave, it was like... There was some of the stuff I quite liked. I think one of the things with punk was, I think because they slagged off all the bands that I was into, I didn't like them. It was kind of, there was a lot of mouth about, you know, you said. (laughs) And um, there was a lot of mouth about kind of like how crap progressive rock was and I kind of objected to it. It was like somebody slagging off your sister. You know, it was kind of, I took objection to it. So. But, but I get a lot of the new wave. I've mean, enjoyed Divi- Joy Division. I liked. I didn't get the Clash at the time, but got them later. Same with the Sex Pistols. You know, I, th- I think I kind of went back and 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 uh, reappraised a lot of that stuff. There was a lot of great energy and, and things in it. The New Romantics, Spandau's are quite liked. Um, Geraniums. I, I never really got into. I think I, I saw too much of the New Romantic stuff that was kind of reminded me of the kind of glam rock stuff that happened when I was a teenager. And I kind of, although I liked a lot of the music in it, I kind of, I I never fitted the fashion. And I think as soon as music is associated with a fashion, I tend to go, "Uh," you know, it immediately puts me off the music. I don't know why it's illogical, but it's kind of the fashion stuff. Because I'm not into that side of things. I've never been in a fashion because I'm a big guy and I can't buy stuff in normal stores, right? And um, apart from dungarees that my wife got me, which are not on today because they're in the wash, right? But uh, but I mean, the whole thing with, with the neuromanics was, it was like, you know, they were all kind of pretty guys and, and stuff and, you know, I just... Didn't get off on it, Simon. Robert Monroe, what's for supper? Uh, it's pesto and salad from the garden, because the cloches that we put up to guard the salad leaves, to keep them warm and to keep the frost away, um, they've excelled at what they've done. And I've now got too much green leaves. So we're now eating green leaves a lot now. Green leaves, radishes we're eating a lot of, and we're eating a lot of red leaves. Well, a lot of leaves, we're eating a lot of leaves at the moment, more leaves than you can imagine to try and get rid of the bit of the stuff at the beds. And, you know, it's it's like it's always the same. I've got tomatoes. If you all lived down the road, I could have come down and probably given each one of you a tomato plant for the amount of things that come through that greenhouse. Germination rates. My germin- germination rate, rates, which means where the seed goes into an actual seedling, they're probably above above 90%. So I've got... Forests of tomato plants, I actually I texted all my neighbours and said anybody wants tomato plants, chilli plants, give me a shout, I said they're all here waiting for you, but I think I'm going to have, I think the count is 21 t- tomato plants in the greenhouse, of which they're across about five, six, seven different types of tomatoes, and then there's about six or seven on the outside for the bins, for the, the, the big containers, and then I'm also growing a couple in the bed this year. I'm growing a latter, which is a, 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 a Russian bush thing. And it just sprawls and it's really early. So, sorry, I'm going in a funny farm kitchen garden mode. Don't mean it. It's, uh, but yeah, but I've got loads of tomatoes and chillies and it's like, um, Thomas Burgi, I remember when you were swimming in the cold fountain in winter tour, Zurich, Switzerland. Do you remember that? Yes, 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 yes. That was fun. We did this this gig, and outside in the street there was these great big uh, round pools that were part of the kind of urban kind of splendour, right? And they they kind of sparkled water. And the gig was so hot. I think it was called the Albani in in winter tour. And it was so hot. I mean, it was absolutely. It, it made it made the marquee seem like a fridge. And I remember I, I said to the guys, I said, look, after the gig, I'm going straight out there into the pond. And that's what we did. So as soon as we finished the set, which was the acoustic set, and uh, it was on the, the suits, kind of pre-suits tour, and it ran out and Wes, Wes was there and, and Tony Terrell was there as well. And we all jumped into this pond, right? This pool in a, in a big concrete round kind of pool thing in the middle of the street, like, you know? And we just sat there and everybody was coming out the, the gig. And they were bringing us pints, and we just sat in this kind of still jacuzzi. <laughs> a cold Swiss jacuzzi with no bubbles. <laughs> and then we sat and drank beer and, and did cigarettes and smoked and stuff. And like and just talked with fans while we just sat in the water inside this gig. It was absolutely brilliant. And we went by there and did exactly the same thing again. It was just... There's something about it after, like when you do a gig, going back into water. I, I, I know I'm a fish, blah, blah, blah. But I remember in Malta, when we played uh, there way back in 2004, I think it was, we played, uh, it was oh, 2003, let me get this right, yeah, 2003, and we did a gig, it was down at the old submarine base, and it was like after the gig, it was like I went down and there was a pier and just into the water, and it was just swimming in the water for like 10, 15 minutes, it was just so calming. And I remember on the, the Vigil Tour, when we played Newport, and the dressing room was actually in the, the male changing rooms in the, 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 the sports hall in Newport. And they had a jacuzzi and it was the same thing, came straight off, the, straight off the stage into the jacuzzi. It's the most relaxing thing. I wish I could do that every night, but not every venue has got a jacuzzi. But, and steam baths, that's another thing I love before the gig. But, but I do like water after a gig. But that or that 2 one was just brilliant. Uh, Uh, Eric Grubbs, High for Maryland. You Missed the Misplaced Children Deluxe set. Uh, I don't have an extra one line about it, sorry. Uh, you know what, it's one of the things, it's like, every now and again, we'll come. We'll be doing a set list, and Steve Vance might be here, and we'll sit and talk about, we need to get that, or we need to get, we need to listen to that album, right? And then I've got, and I can't find it, right? Because I keep on giving them away, right? And it's like, it was, it was the same when when, when Kayleigh came out, I mean, even way back then when I lived in Aylesbury, down in, um, down in Street. <coughs> it was like, people come to the house and go, yeah, there's a single, there's an album, have it. Yeah, have that, have that. And I never, and then I end up with none. And I remember, it was a lot of the Marillion stuff, like some of the basic, I've still got some of the specials, like Japanese prints and stuff of that, Like, which you know nothing about, right? Um, I've still, but a lot of the basic albums and things, i I, I had very few left, if at, at all, and this, I've given again with the solo stuff. I mean, I think with the, uh, I was looking for a copy of Yin and I couldn't find it, and even Sushi, I had to buy Sushi off eBay because I couldn't find a copy of Sushi anywhere in the house, right? So I had to buy it off eBay. Hi, name please, Fish. It's a great album. Ah. Uh, Tris Thompson, hi, fish. How did a collaboration with Rick Astley on Tilted Cross happen? Uh, was he in Tilted Cross? <coughs> Mission statement was was the one. I think I did did were right. I was I am. Um, I'm trying to think when this was. It was before the before the Rain Gods album, and um. I'd been asked by people. Well, I think that the original came from uh, it was Miles Copeland who was the original police manager and was Sting's manager. And he's a big music business guy. And he owned a chateau, uh, the Chateau Marouat, which was way down in the in Angoulême, I think it was, in France. And it become quite famous, because what they used to do was, Miles Copeland had a a publishing company, which I think was called IRS. And then he teamed up with, I think it was uh, Polydor, or Polygram, right? And what they did was, I I think it was, they had eight writers from each group. So there was eight writers from Miles's label, there was eight from Polygram, and they got eight independent writers in. So basically you had 24 writers, you went down and you stayed in this beautiful chateau. And I'm talking about, it's a real serious, full dabby-dab chateau. I mean, like, it was like, uh, it had towers and lawns and great halls and, and stuff. And it was run by, Miles Copeland, uh owned it, but it was operated and run, the, the sort of staff were all, uh, I think it was one of the guys at Wishbone Ash who used to be managed by Miles. And he they did all the catering. So basically, 24 musicians, or so budding songwriters, all go down the chateau. We all get given our own rooms because there are that many, right? And every day you were assigned into a writing team, a three a three person writing team, and there was one person from Miles's, Miles's label, one from Polydor's, and one independent. And it was great. I mean, for Miles and for for Polygram or whatever Polydor Polygram. It was like they always owned thirty percent of the song through one of the writers, right? So it was in their interest, and and there was really classic writers there. I can't remember all the names off the top of my head, but I mean, they were they were big players in like country and western field, and Sam Brown was down there. Uh, Rick Astley was uh, was another one that was down there, and there was uh, a couple of a couple of lassies for uh, the Runaways. Um, I can't remember the names. Um, Anyway, we got put down there for about I think it was uh, just over a week, and every day you, you, they read out at breakfast today you will be working with so and so and so and so. Then you went in a room and your your duty for that day was to write a song. You had to write a song a day, and I'd never been under that kind of pressure before, and actually being in a kind of you know write it in a day, and um, I didn't think I could do it. And uh, and on top of that, I was working with you know every morning. It was like hi, this is Mia Sharp was was, was one of the, the people I worked for, and Liz Antwi was uh, oh she was down there, and um, it was one of them things where you were going into a room with somebody and you didn't know whether they were a guitarist or a keyboard player or, or whatever. And of course, I didn't play an instrument. Which meant that you know I was just I was going in there as a pure lyricist, so anything that I was getting involved with, I was pushing up that lyric, and the splits were already agreed, so there was no argument about kind of well I wrote this or I wrote that. It was like, it was a straight one third split on everything, right? And um, which was another different thing because normally a song is fifty percent lyrics and fifty percent music. That's the kind of the standard engagement rule. So you're going in a situation where You know, everybody's a mutual share, so there's going to be no argument. Nobody's pushing themselves. There's no egos. And you just had to create a song that day. And then at the end, of, and then you had to record it as well. So you had to write it and then record it. There was only, I think, three studio, little demo studio setups in the the chateau, and you had to book the demo. So sometimes you were working all the way through, you know, to, to get that song done for that day, and you'd be working all the way up to dinner, because at dinner that night, basically, your songs were played to everybody, you heard everybody else's song in the room. And uh, so it was, it was quite daunting. And um, and I loved it. It was really, really different for me. And one of the days I ended up with uh, Rick Astley. And um, the genres of the songs were just, it was up to whatever happened, whatever came into your head. So there were really different types of songs. The first one I wrote, I think was that was with Mia, and that was Mr Buttons. And Mr Buttons is on the remaster, on the, the, the extra songs on the remaster of Rain Gods with Zippo's. Then there was Chasing Miss Pretty, which was another song that, that bleeped onto the, the, the remaster. That was written by a, well, a young Australian guy who became a major, major writer, and I can't, remember, I, I can't remember his name. He's an Australian who became a major writer in America. And of course, I had Tilted Cross from that. And I had Incomplete, two brilliant songs that I pulled out. And Mr. Buttons, I thought was a great song, very Genesis kind of modern Genesis kind of vibe. And, uh, which was not through my doing, by the way, that was through the people I was writing with. Andy Gardner, uh, who was one of the writers, I think he was on, uh, he was on Mr. Buttons as well. And we became really good friends. And he was a writer that was based in Paris. It was great. It was a great. It was a really eclectic mix of people in a chateau, all shut away in the same way as we used to do. You know, when we were, I was writing with Marillion and stuff, everybody was locked away. And Marillion actually recorded. They did some uh, some recording down at the Chateau Marouin, I think for, I think it was the Brave album. And when they were still EMI, and EMI paid the. Yeah, costs a lot of money to go down there. <laughs> I think they recorded on a boat. They did a recording in a cave on a boat. Anyway, they, they worked in there, and I worked in there on the Chateau Marowat uh, writing sessions, and I came away with, like I said, there was Mission Statement, uh, no tumble down, Mr. Mission Statement, Mr Buttons, Tilted Cross, uh, Incomplete, Uh She's almost pretty, and there was one other that I wrote with Sam Brown and uh, and the Lassie for the Runaways, and that, that's never been used, and I've I lost the demo of that. I didn't actually sing on it. It was, I think, Sam's on that. It was, it was a really good song, but it was, it was, it was one of those things where occasionally you get a hit that would come out. But it was a great experience, and I think it really helped me when it came into working on the Rain God stuff because I was struggling to to find the Rain Gods album. I had this, the Plague of Christ or All These Christs, which became Plague of Ghosts. I had that, but I was missing for the other stuff. And of course, Mickey Simmons came back in and we did uh, Rites of Passage and, uh, and Tumble Down. So uh, it was a strange mishmash an album, but the Chateau Art sessions were great. And that was how I met Rick Astley. And there was a film, we, it was one of them strange things. I had a, a video camera, everybody was taking stills, and I said, well, rather than everybody doing their own little videos and stuff like that, why don't we make one so we get everybody involved in it? And there was a few of us got together, and Andrew Gardner, Andy Gardner was one of them. He was kind of my, uh, my co-director. And uh, we, we wrote this whole kind of, it was a, a kind of really rough script. And it was basically, about the dolmen stones and it was about it's a spooky castle the dolmen stones which were d- just down the road which was a neolithic stone thing or whatever it was and we came up with this thing about how they were cursed and blah 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 and the whole line of the story was that musicians were getting murdered and going missing and it was like so every one of the musicians that was in the in the chateau was getting murdered in strange ways i think i was eaten by a uh, uh, piranha goldfish or something right and uh and gary that had been brought into the the chateau by Gary, oh, what's his name? Guy, Guy, Gary Davis? No, he's the Pink Floyd drummer, right? And he'd just come off a Pink Floyd tour to come at the chateau, and he was the drummer that played with all the different kind of um, uh, little units, the right units that were set up during the day. Anyway, so we did this film called Night at the Doleman, and it was we showed it at one of the Hannington conventions, and somebody asked me on another question on on this lineup. It's like. Could Night of the Dolmen ever be released? Not in a million years. It's got Rick Astley as a, as a, a robot, kind of like the alien, spewing white stuff and everything, because he's a robot in it. And various other people in in, in situations which I think their, their managers and agents might not like them being in a movie called The Night of the Dolmen. And it was it was absolutely brilliant. And I, I would love to do it properly you know, actually do it properly because we made the script up as we went along and every night you know you were assigning people you're dying tonight you're dying tonight it was great night of the dolmen for those of you who saw it you did get a treat uh. Johan Vanderville Hello Mark Fuchik would you ever do a lockdown version of one of your songs Together Marillion? No because it's lockdown and that ain't gonna happen. And it's like, why you even bother asking that? I don't know why. Right. Uh, Daniel Peltner, Love Mr Buttons. Yeah, it was a good song. Yeah, it was a good song. Uh, Norman Warburton, are you going to film the Farewell Tour for Blue release? Yeah, there'll, there'll definitely be a film made of that. Got to do that. Jesse Duke from Poland. Hiya. Now he spilled mine a lot. Uh, yeah, the IRS label, Miles Copeland. Yeah, it was a good label. It was a. John Ward, had to see vaping, big man. Well, it's either that or twenty a day. This does me all right. Go off my case. Kevin Van Dort, hello. Wendy Van Ertweg, hello. Raymond Van Jeek. hello. Oh, I've got to say, I've got to say, um, Helen and Andy Wilkinson, um, happy tenth anniversary. I've promised I'd, I'd say that to you. And thanks for doing all the, the fish mods but and Andy and all the boys, thank you very much. You know. but happy 10th anniversary, hell. Hope you're doing very well. And uh, a message for Dave Barris. Daffodils. Daffodils. It's a code thing. All right. I can say the codes, it's like, it's like the BBC during kind of like 39.45 when they used to send messages to the French Resistance. You know, like, the zippers will be open when the orange blossom falls from the moon. The dictionary is more than capable of being written in Spanish. That was a message for the fish heads out there. You know what to do. It's true though, people used to say like, with well, the albums, you're, like, you're putting secret messages, right? And th- this is a true story, right? When we got a our, 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 our tour, so I think it was, it might've been the 1983 tour, right? And uh, it was up and down and up and down, and it was all over the place in the UK, just following dates. It wasn't like, you know, well, we'll go up the East Coast and swing around the North and come back down again and then fill in the center. It wasn't, it was like that. It was up, down, up, down, up, down, right? Aberdeen, Lancaster, Lancaster, Glasgow, da-da-da, Sheffield, you know, but, right? And it was so higgledy piggledy, right? People were actually asking, right? They said, like, well, why why is the tour mapped out like this? And somebody came up, this is true. Somebody wrote and says, because it's in the shape of a jester. If you join all the dots and all the gigs and the venues, it makes up the shape of a jester. You insane person. Aye, can you book us a tour, please? Uh, can you just make uh, a I do it a jester shape. Make sure you get the fiddle up there. Aye. So, I mean, if, that's right, there's a fiddle, aye. Dartmouth, yeah, that's right. You know. Newcastle, yeah, yeah, that's, that's the inner leg. Aye, shape of a jester. Insane. Fish, would you like Stephen Wilson or re- remixing any of your albums? Liam Molyneux. Yeah, I'd, I'd love, you know, I would have loved Stephen to do Rain Gods with Zipples, right? I'd love Callum to do Rain Gods with Zipples first and foremost. One of the problems is, Rain Gods and Fellini Days, right? One of the things with studios, right? It's like, it's the same as buying product. You know, you've got vinyl, you've got cassettes, you've got eight tracks, there go eight tracks, like da-da-da, vinyl disappears for a while, then you got CDs, and everybody does CD, and then it's downloaded, blah-blah-blah. The same happened in studios, and you had, you know, reel-to-reel tape. When this studio opened, I had a DDA, when the, the Funny Farm recording studio opened in 91, and had a DDA desk, which was a 56-track, and I had a 32-channel, uh, Sony Mitsubishi digital one-inch machine through there and I had a two-inch 24-track analogue and they both worked and they were synced into this desk so that you had the best of both worlds so you could record with digital and analogue simultaneously. We ended up recording stuff on the analogue and then bouncing it all across to the, the digital for ease of mixing in the later days, but. We moved off tape uh, in in, kind of late 90s and we started working on another format. I can't even remember what the hell it was called. And we recorded, we put all the the multi-tracks of Rain Gods and subsequently Fellini Days on these these formats. And they got damaged. And when we try, when I went there, When I was putting the remasters together for Rain Gods and Fellini, we could not find the multi-tracks of the the albums. We couldn't open them, we sent them away to a special place down south and, you know, can you please, 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 you know, you know. And they just went, nah, impossible. And I was gutted, absolutely gutted because I really wanted to mix, remix uh, the Rain Gods album and the Fellini albums and I remember talking with Elliot, who'd, Elliot Ness, Elliot Singerman, who'd uh, worked on it and I was talking to him about you know where are they, where can we find it and um, we didn't have any safeties, right, it was ridiculous. So those two albums, it was a real, it was really sad that, uh, that I kind of lost that look. It's 10 past 7. Um, I'm only watching the time because I want to play you something. Right. Uh, Tuso de Martini, en Espanol. No, sorry. Oh, big time. Happy birthday. Um, Hi Fish, when will the next number single drop off your new album? It's going to be Gardens of Remembrance that I played last week and that's coming out in June and we're setting that up, which takes me into where we're at. uh, I got the first mix from Callum uh, for Rosie Damascus. Rosie Damascus is 16 minutes long. It's an epic, right? I mean, in old money, that's half an album, right? And uh it's a major it's a major kind of climb. And when we get mixes, uh when I get mixes with Steve and I, Steve answers and I get sent the mixes by dropbox because obviously we can't see. I would love to get in a car and go across and see Callum in his house, because Callum lives in St. Moans which is just across in Fife. He's across the water, he's a speedboat away, right? And um he sends us the mix, but we usually get to about When it gets to Mix 5, we're in the area. When when we hit Mix 5, we're in in the big body. And I've got Mix 5 of Rose of Damascus the other day, and it sounds stunning. What we're doing now is, I was explaining to Mark Wilkinson, I was on the phone to Mark, because we were talking about the sleeve, because he's advanced the sleeves a long, long way. We're at a point now where the album needs to be agreed for. I need to hear the whole album as a wanna, so I can hear every track and hear, make sure the layout and the whole signal and curve of that album is right. And then I've got to allocate it to, to the vinyl is the first thing up because it takes longer to do vinyl than it takes to do anything else. The only thing that takes longer than vinyl or, or nearly as long as vinyl is doing the, the, the deluxe hardcover book. So Mark is working the hardback, the, the hardback deluxe cover version book the vinyls in place. Callum is moving up to the point now where he's just about got the guard. Uh, he's just about got the Rosa Damascus mix f- sorted. Then he flips into remixing Waverly Steps so that it ties in completely with what we're doing on this album and Little Man and and Man with a Stick, which were all designated. But now we know what the overall sound of the album should be. Then we bring Waverly Steps, Man with a Stick, and uh, uh, Little Man. What now? We bring all them up to speed, so they lie on the. the they're on the. So it, it sounds all part of the same kind of project, um, and we we learned a lot about the tracks, and Callum's heard a lot inside the tracks since "Parley with Angels" came out. So the "Parley with Angels" versions will be kind of old hat. I mean, they've basically become, you know, I wouldn't say demos, but I mean, they're kind of first versions. So we're currently. Rose Damascus, it's 16 minutes, we're a mix five, I am not playing you the whole thing, so I'm sorry. I can play you the first kind of four minutes or so, because after that, none of us are particularly happy about exactly where it's sitting. You might not notice it, because as I say, with Mark Wilkinson, you know, explaining to Mark, it's like Mark trying to explain to me, you know, it's like, well, what, what shade of green are you looking for? You know, it's kind of like that. And we know kind of where Callum and Steve and I kind of know what's the right, where it pings in exactly the right place. And it's not pinging in the right place yet. But it's very, very close. It's so close. So I'm going to play a wee bit of it. It's an epic. right? It's an absolute epic. Um, When my mother heard it, she said, that seems like a movie, son. And... That's pretty good when you get that. Everybody is in awe of this piece, and we played it at the Aberdeen Lemon Tree, and bef- we didn't have the strings on board, right? So, this is my embarrassing tech moment again. This is where I get up and try not to fart like an old man. <laughs> that was the knees clicking. <laughs> oh, God. Right. Uh, Right. Bear with me, find the remote. Come on. OK, what's the mask is? A wee bit. touch of that I don't want to spoil this this is this like it's such an epic that it's like a complete journey and I think when you, you get a song like that when it can pass in and when it feels like it passes in six seven minutes then you nailed it and that's kind of where we're at. with the mixes when we first had the mixes they, they felt like 16 now it's starting to feel like sort of like six seven minutes and that's where you know it's working you just, you're in there and you just lose track of time. And it's, it's, it's an interesting song because it it's gave us, it gave Steve and I some scope to really play about with some stuff and, um, you know, and moving in sections like how I used to write in the old days, it was, uh, it's kind of, because I approached, so we approached this with a very kind of cinematic kind of sense of mind, you know, it is the story the girl the song is called rose of damascus right and uh the whole story about it is um uh it was originally inspired by um watching a channel four thing called the garden of aleppo and it was a a short film at the end of channel four news item and it was about a garden in aleppo and it inspired me because it was this old guy with his two sons who was trying to run out a garden centre in Aleppo and, and keep flowers, keep growing flowers to try and achieve some sense of normality, which kind of linked into my thinking at the time of flowers and gardening and velcroverts. And then I started to research it. Then I came across this story about the Rose of Damascus, which is one of the oldest rose types that, that, is, that exists and is actually the, one of the main, the main foundation types of rose for most of the European roses. And um, the story went that it was found in about 1340. It was brought back to France in 1340 by a knight who took it from the, the, the walls of Damascus during the siege in, in, at that time. And, that, and I liked that story and I, I wanted to expand upon it. And then I kind of riled it through and I was trying to find an angle to, to work it. And I came up with the idea like, rather than it being an actual rose, as in a flower, it became as, as, as in a young girl, like a flower. And it, the, the Rose of Damascus, the parts you just heard, the first part is kind of what I call the eternal section and it's about, it's just the desert, it's just, there is no time, there is no place apart from the desert, but there's no sense of timing and belonging in no. it, and it's just about the eternity of the people working in the desert cultivating the roses, because the roses are cultivated in order to get their oil. It takes tons to make this oil, which is again, a a very important base for a lot of perfumes. And the Rose of Damascus is is in in danger because the roses grow in a lot of the areas in in Syria where uh, the fighting took place, and it was too dangerous for people to go out and collect them and the flowers, the roses haven't been looked after and they've gone wild and they've, they've gone diseased, dead, blah, blah, blah. So the Rose, the, the future of the Rose is a question, the Rose itself. But my story starts off, like I said, with uh, the idea of the first section being a kind of the eternal section. Then it moves into like the like modern day Damascus, like pre-war, where it's a young girl who's kind of excited by, you know, Western experiences and the input she's getting from uh, media and internet and Facebook and blah, blah, blah. And it's about how that struggle between old and new happens. And it's about the revolution starts to take shape and she's caught up in it, not really understanding what was going on, but it's just change. And then it goes into the, the following sections, which are basically the revolution goes into conflict, goes into like the beat down, goes into the destruction, goes into her uh, basically waking up in the debris or the, the, the place that she knew and everybody's gone and she's on her own. And it's, so she decides she has to leave and she finds, she sees, a rose on a balcony, on a terracotta balcony, and it's the only colour that she can see in the entire street. And she takes this rose and wraps it up and, and keeps it, and takes the, holds the roots and puts them in clay and, and takes it, and she heads off and she goes towards Lebanon and goes on the boat and the, 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 the whole piece ends with her basically getting on the boat on the way, right? To wherever, to her destiny, whatever it is, but it is the journey of the rose. And it was, it's, it's a movie, it's, um, it would make, it's a good pitch for a screenplay, I think. Um, and it's kind of, we decided to, to, to treat all the sections as kind of separate things. So they move in, but they've got different textures, different dynamics, and um, they employ different things, brass, strings, et cetera, to try and color it and, and give it this whole story thing. And I think it's, it's, it's a really, really strong piece. And um, I know that Mark Wilkinson, uh, it's, he's had demos of it and it's the one that he's aching to hear. And, uh, and like I said, I got Mix 5 back the other day, which that is part of. But I mean, even that, this, this, this polishing and, and switching and just little touches and trims all to be done that Callum is brilliant at. But it takes a long time to do it. So. That's another reason why I say about the, the whole lockdown, it's like you find the silver lining, I mean we could have been really, we could have been fighting, you know, because I mean the album, we were going to have all the, the sounds delivered on the original schedule line, where the sounds were to be there by the end of April, so we're now coming towards the end of May. And that breath has just given us, it took the pressure off off the things So Callum's been able to take some days off and, and approach it and be very methodical and precise about, you know, he's got time to analyse and twitch and change and, and do it, which I'm glad we've got. And at the moment, our, our asset deadline, the assets being all the the, the artwork and, and the the, the the, the sounds and the, the video and everything, all the assets have got to be in place for production and kinda at the beginning of July and we're well online for that. But having the having that little bit of gap, I mean another thing I'm really looking for is Avril Mackintosh and Andy Bradfield. Hi there guys. Is, uh, they're doing the the five to one mix, which is the first five to one mix I've ever had done on on, on my material and um i decided to go for it on this album because i, I thought it, it, the album just lends itself to five to one in cinema i mean very much lends itself to that and avril and andy are, are are sending me up the first of the five to one mixes this week i hope so it'll be let's get the tech fired up and hope that it works oh yes <laughs> bollocks uh, uh. Jeff Larson, voice is sounding perfect. <laughs> yeah, some you know. yeah. people were asking me about the voice. You know, it's changed a lot. Yeah, yeah, so well, I'm happy with it. I like it now, I like it now. It's like, you know, it's it sits where it sits in, in the the throat of a 62-year-old man who's been there, seen it, done it, and sold a shitload of T-shirts, a whole wardrobe full of T-shirts, right? Yeah, I can't wait to hear the whole thing. Mary John Ritchie, Magic, good, glad you liked it. Uh, Jim Maxwell looking for how the story, goes to the song, you like it. The other thing that I've used, what I've gone back to on, on this song, is like, it's spoken word and using that poetry stuff and just talking. Like, kind of like what I did on, on Jungle Ride that I really loved. And what I've used way back in Fugazi, um, you know, I like using the spoken word thing, which opens up something about, you know, somebody asked me another question, the name I can't remember, sorry, but it was about, you know, the beat poetry side of things and, and, you know, maybe doing, you know, spoken versions of lyrics just over atmospherics. Yeah, that's something that might be done. Maybe in that year between you know, the the touring whenever it happens. Maybe that's when I'm supposed to be doing that kind of stuff. Uh, uh, Steve Pritchard, hi, Aline Bromberger. There you go. Neil Montgomery. Christopher Crossing love the shirt. I like it, it's quite cool. Old fashioned shot. Uh, like I said, the boys support the club. It was like, you know, they're all reeling. And it's kinda uh Ian Trott, Neil Montgomery, um, Ronald Kacheris, C- 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 Fulton, Walter Allison, have a nice weekend, y'all. David Bain, a from Calgary, which I guess is a Scottish name. Calgary. I remember being in Calgary. That was a really weird thing. We went there in the winter and it was like every, inside everything was like super heated. And then you walked there and said, I remember we were doing doing a, f- a photo shoot in this guy's studio, and I wanted to go out and get a pack of cigarettes. And I said, "Where's the shop?" And I, he said, "Oh, it's about a block away." I said, "I'll go. I'll get." He says, "No, you don't want to do that, right?" He said, "You better mask up." I said, "I'm just all going up the. I'm, I'm Scottish. I'm only going up the road, right? It's only a block away. It's only like a hundred yards away." And he says, "No." He said, "You have to be very careful." I walked outside, and it was like. It was like somebody put soldering irons up my nose. It was just, I've never known cold like it. I think it was minus 35 with the wind chill, and I was like, oh. And that night when we played the gig, it was really funny. You saw these huge creatures coming into the gig, moving towards the gig, like, oh. It was like some sort of weird horror movie thing, like creatures coming, oh. Rows and lines of them coming into this hall in Calgary. And it was, I think it was a school hall or something. It wasn't like a, it didn't seem like a nominated gig. And then they started to take their coats off, right? And it was a coat and then another coat and another coat. It was like a, the Russian doll version of Cagulls, right? Just taking Cagulls off and furry things and stuff. And there was literally, there was, a, there, there was no, um, there was no kind of co- cloakroom. What they had, they, they built a wall. Right, there was a wall right along the back of the venue that was about maybe a meter and a half high, right, and it was about a meter deep, right, and it was just jackets, right, just a huge wall of jackets, meticulously put. You never knew. I'm going to find out which ones theirs at the end. But that was Calgary, and it was, a, and we were, we were on that tour, which was a really weird tour. And we were kind of driving in the. we never saw the places we were kind of driving in the middle of the night and big long drives and waking up in the morning and doing interviews and then doing the gig and then get back doing another big long drive in the darkness and hello and welcome to vancouver it was bizarre i think we did winnipeg and calgary and they were they were just really they were strange gigs but i wanted to go back there you know i've, I've, I've said to the missus one of the things i've always wanted to do is to go on a train ride and do Canada, east uh, to west coast, you know? And do It's something to do with toy trains when I was a kid, right? But I've always fancied doing that trip, you know, and doing that whole kind of big journey and stopping off in Calgary and stopping off in all these places and seeing them. Because it's the problem with touring. You never get a chance to really see places because you're it's gig, it's interviews. Paris, right? I went to Paris for the first time in 1983, right? I never saw the Eiffel Tower, right? Other than out of a tour window, out of a window of a tour bus, I never saw the Eiffel Tower until 1996. I climbed it, right? 1996, because every time I went to the palace, I was to Paris. I was in the Holiday Inn in the Place de la Republique, and I was sitting there in a the room doing interviews while everybody else went away and enjoyed the Louvre and walked along the banks of the Seine. I was sitting there talking shite to people in a Holiday Inn hotel room, right? And it's the people, you're going to miss touring? Uh-uh. Right. Who painted your portrait from the Scattering Crows album? Daniel Craig, not the Daniel Craig, I don't think. That up there, that is um, Mark Wilkinson's acrylic uh, painting of me, that he gave me at the end of the, the, Scattering, Crows, uh, um, the Scattering Crows album. Um, or Field of Crows album. And because it was like an homage to kind of uh, Vincent Van Gogh, and that the whole cover was kind of supposed to represent the, the Field of Crows, which were all um, scattered, scattering crows, which was the, 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 I can't remember what the exact name of the, the, the thing was. I saw the original painting in the Van Gogh Museum in Amsterdam and I was blown away by it. And it was a represent. It was all about depression and and a lot of heavy googling, right? But anyway, so I wanted the 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 crows and the field to look like the Van Gogh thing. So Mark went back in acrylic, and he did that, and he gave it to me. And it's one of my favourite. It's it is my favourite painting myself, and you know my wife loves that too. And it's uh, it's brilliant, and it hangs over the record deck because I think that is the place for it. So. Twenty-five two. Max Max biography. Yes, done that one all the time. There is a biography coming out. There, da, da, da blah, 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 blah blah blah. It will come out eventually. Uh, Nook Neffels uh, from Rotterdam. Pilgrim's address lyrics, that's another thing. That's another big answer. Uh Holy St Albans, Max Salters, Mark Fregard, V Mark Fregard. If you are, hello. I remember you, Rasputins. Joseph Rodrigues, Hello Fish, New Jersey, USA. Bob Falk, what is your favorite horror film? I don't like horror films. I I, I remember I I I think it's my imagination, and I fill in the gaps, and I get to, I get very wrapped up in movies. I went to see I remember I went to see The Exorcist and walked out after about ten minutes, absolutely petrified, before he even got into the gory stuff. I was petrified. It was just, you know, uh, I I used to watch a lot of the Hammer horror movies when I was, uh, I used to have a black and white TV set in in, in my bedroom, my eventual bedroom uh, was my granddad's old room and I, I got left, I had a TV in there, a wee black and white TV. And we used to get in there and we used to watch, it was like Friday nights, I think it was, it was Hammer horror nights. I used to get you know Dracula's wife and all that stuff, and Bride of Frankenstein, and you know Wolfman's cousin and all that kind of stuff. I mean, crap, but I mean when I was a kid, you it, it scared the shit out of me. And the Thing, like the Thing, I was terrified watching the Thing. I've I've got I've got too much imagination because I, I like I fill in all the gaps, you know, and I get really caught up in, in film, you know. But uh, it's um, but I, I'm not a fan of horror movies. I can Alien, I saw Alien when it first came out in Edinburgh at the Odeon, when it came out, I think it played during the Edinburgh Festival when it was first released, and that, that scared me, but I loved that, I, li- I did like that one, uh, didn't scare me that much, But from when it came out of the stomach, that really put the fear in me, didn't like that, because I'm prone to indigestion, so like, you know, things come out your stomach. Nah. but horror movies, nah, I'm not a big fan. Joe Rosenthal, on the other end, how about getting so sunburned in my patio in 1997? <laughs> be sunburned, bald head.
1: Mm.
0: Right, how is the store website getting on? Any idea when we'll be going live? Thank you. Uh, was that Mark Sutton? I think so. Yeah, it's coming on. Like I said, well, there's a lot of... The old website was real clunky click steam driven packet vibe thing right this new one is a lot more complicated and as such it's throwing up a couple of glitches here and there that we're ironing out samora's loving it at the moment she was really daunted by the whole thing about a week ago but she's starting to see the light and she's starting to see how it's going to help us deal with stuff which is fantastic and it's not going to help us it's going to help you as well because it's like you'll get sent tracking numbers and blah 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 and you have different options for different posts and etc etc posts not too bad at the moment a couple of annoying things happening but I mean you know once this is one of the problems once it leaves this building no matter whether it's tracked or shipped or whatever as soon as it leaves this building it's in the hands of somebody else and that can be that can create issues for us but again, the more we know about when it goes and how it goes and the fact that the Royal Mail know when it's gone because they've, they're assigning it. It's a, because we're working, working a system that's very much in, in, in conjunction with Royal Mail. But as I said, there's a lot of big glitches and stuff. I wanna make sure everything's sorted out. It would have been lovely to be able to announce it and say, yeah, as of tomorrow, it's all working. It's not, we'll let you know. It will definitely be up and running by next week. But I'll 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 do an announcement on Facebook when the, when the store opens and, and when it happens, and I'll be interested to see kind of what you think about it as well, you know. But it's, um, so yeah, so the mail of the store is going to be taking precedence in the next couple of days, and that, and listening to the Rose of Damascus, the next mix season here, and the further polish that's going on, and things will be happening and gelling and doing wonders and stuff. Right. Simon Davis, Wheatfield with Crows. I think it is Wheatfield with Crows, yeah. But it was all to do, uh, uh, that the whole painting had a lot to do with, it was supposed to be the, the, the field that Van Gogh saw, that Vincent Van Gogh saw there during his, his, a, a very depressed period, which is the, the Crows were supposed to represent, you know, his black dog, you know, it was like the Crows were signified depression within a painting, even though it was a, a beautiful, and yellow was supposed to be a colour that made them feel really happy. So I think it was a, a song about conflict, and it was very soon after that that uh, um, uh, there was this uh, suicide attempt and things. And I think I wrapped kind of that in the Field of Crows as well. It's, it's, uh, it's like an onion. It's like an onion. There's loads of layers to this stuff, but it doesn't make up the shape of a jester. That's all you need to know. Right? Andre Norman Sunday, hi, did you know Jackie Leaven, another big guy from Scotland? Yes, Jackie was a friend of mine. And um, Jackie and I became friends when I got involved with Double O Charity and his uh, ex-partner was uh, G- uh, Judy Tottenham, who was my press agent. She was a lovely woman, very intelligent, beautiful woman and a um, very wise person. And she, her and Jackie were, were very, very close. And um, uh Jackie Levin was the guy that I talked to in after Fife Aid and at Fife Aid about Levin Marillion. And I said to Jackie, what'd I do? And he was a very wise man, a very articulate man. He was a great poet, wonderful voice. He had his own horrific voice problems uh, back in the day. He was actually attacked outside a pub in made Vale, and his, uh, his voice box was crushed in the fight. And it took him he was a long time to recover, and he thought he would lose his voice. And he had a lot of issues where, um, um a lot of issues were uh, opiates to deal with the pain, which he kind of got too involved with. And through that, he spun through into another life. And he was a, a, a very clever man. I, I loved his company. He was a he was a man's man, you know. And um, he was somebody I, I loved going out for a drink. Where I loved sitting down and talking to. And I called upon his advice on a number of occasions in, in periods in the '90s when I was really struggling with things. And as I said, Jackie was—I always remember Jackie talking about uh, leaving the band uh, and how I felt. And da, da, da. so, yeah, and sadly missed. He was—he was, he was a, a great man. And I, I, you know, I didn't see him that much, but I counted on him as being a great friend. He was always at the end of phone if you ever want to contact him. But that was Jackie, RIP Jack. All right. I need to say hello Andreas. Andreas, I'm thinking about you and your dad. Yes, a long cold day, Late right enough. That'll be an explanation on another time because I don't have enough time here because it's quarter two and tonight's dinner is going to be spaghetti pesto with salad from the garden. I'm not taking a photograph, but it's going to be cracking. Oh. Right. Uh, where are we? Marky Hosking, hi from Crete. Oh, well, that was the first. Jean Vincent Defresne, could you explain the meaning behind 30 staff? I'll do that next week. It's a long one. Tony Summers, just told you it's pesto. What are you have in New Jersey, mate? Uh, John Watson, is your Polska film available to buy? Polska was a movie that was filmed on the Fish Heads tour in Poland back in 2010. And it was premiered at the Edinburgh Festival, the Edinburgh Film Festival, and got really good reviews. And it's a greedy movie. And there's been questions about that for a while. Those issues were ownership, because I didn't film it, it was done by an independent company and a couple of the guys had a fallout and I got caught up in it. And uh, But eventually what I'd like to do is put the Polska film together with the Fishheads Club footage, together with basically like at least a kind of triple CD of all the recordings of the various versions or stuff that we played on the Fishheads Club tour because that was a fantastic tour. And it, we never really put a decent version out from a real... Something that represented that tour. And I'd like to put together a kind of anthology, like an acoustic anthology in a way, bringing in the Polska film at some point. And at this moment in time, I'll probably be sitting doing that uh, at some point towards the end of this year. So um, but we'll see what happens. It's quarter two and... I'll leave it at that. There's a couple of great questions come up there, but I'll copy them off. So it's me. The air dinger is almost dry. The wind is blowing a whist outside. Um, another week. A week of sorting out the mail order system, sorting out Rose of Damascus. I have to start writing the two and a half to three thousand words of sleeve notes for Welch that I've been kind of, um, I was not avoiding, but it's been one of them things where I have to do, I have to do. I've got to finish off doing, filming for the pond, the water feature outside. I've got to do a load of stuff in the garden. I've got to sow all my kale and my brassicas and my cauliflowers. I've got a load of things to do out there this week. Um, on the album, I've got to start phoning up people. I've got to phone up Will Smith and deal with, the the future, interviewing things, and um, the interview for the Veltipers Almond, and basically start bringing pieces together and stay sane and stay healthy. Um, It's going okay. You know, there's all this talk about lockdown being lifted. I ain't planning on rushing out to a pub or a restaurant or whatever in the near future. um, I'm going by the advice that... uh, First Minister Nicola Sturgeon's given, to be honest. And uh I can handle it, we're handling it. My mum's good. She got another jigsaw today. Uh we don't really mention the other jigsaw because she spilt water all over it. We had thirty pieces left to put in and she knocked a glass of water over it. Poor soul. And the jigsaw was the jigsaw was knackered. So that went in the bin and my mum was just starting to get outside get outside again today. And the jigsaw arrived, so she's got a brand new jigsaw, so there's something else for us to do. Yes. Simona's great. She's loving getting to grips with a new mail order system, not, and uh, she's been working her ass off trying to get this all together. Liam's handling it. He's a very happy bunny because his PS4, which uh, had problems last week with download, is now working. She's now got to talk to all these mates, so he's a happy bunny. And I'll be a lot happier when I get the, the garden up and zapped again. Because it's like you go through these lull periods. But I'm alright. It's good. I'm feeling okay. I'm healthy. I've lost a wee bit of weight. Not loads, but there's enough. And there'll be more to lose. Definitely. And I just hope you're all staying sane and staying healthy. Um, I I do actually really, really love a lot of these. It's, um, it's you know... The last two, three days, I was kind of going, oh, yeah, it's only a couple of days now, a couple of days, and we're here again. And uh, I've been, there's been, people have tried to poach me, you know, like concerns have tried to poach me for their own commercial aims, to, to front their own programmes. And I've said, no, this is where I belong, right? So it's Fish and Friday at six o'clock, every Friday, every Friday, with a mess, right? And I'm, so, all of you out there, it's been lovely talking to you again. I hope you enjoyed today's programme. Uh, and I'll see you next week, next Friday, 6 o'clock British Standard Time, here on the wonderful format of Small Foon. Till then, take care, stay healthy, and stay alive. Watch after. Bye bye.